I thought it's so great out here, but it's sad that sometimes the geography can maybe limit the experiences that young people are having. Meet the enthusiastic and passionate Jane Vaughan, co-founder, co-director and employee of Big Sky Stories, a community-based organisation in Broken Hill which wants to give children in the far west of New South Wales a love of stories and reading. She is today's guest on A Home in the Outback, a podcast about people living, working and creating in the far west. I'm your host, Catherine Waite. Jane chose to move to Broken Hill about 15 years ago after finishing her university teaching degree in Sydney. Living in the city was not her cup of tea, so she opened the street directory in her car one day and decided Broken Hill was pretty west. She moved here without a job, but word soon got around town a teacher was here and she had a job at Railway Town Public School. Around 2010, Jane started seeing new models of engaging children in creative writing open up in the cities and thought it was an exciting way to engage children in a rapidly changing world. But there were no opportunities in the far west. She sat on the idea for 10 years before deciding to do something about it and in 2022, Big Sky Stories began with a physical space in Argent Street in Broken Hill. Jane, thank you so much for your time. Um, We are in your beautiful um, Big Sky Stories store at the moment. Do you call it a store? It's hard to know. Some people call it the bookshop. Some people call it a a play space. I tend to try and refer to it as just our community space, which involves a few different elements so but it's lovely to have you and thank you for coming and inviting me yeah um i'm gonna ask you a lot about big sky stories mm-hmm. but before we do let's you know you're born and bred broken hill or are you from away i am very from away i would not want to offend anybody from broken hill i have been here almost very close to 15 years so i've been here for quite a while but still I know I'm a C grader and that's okay. Uh, I primarily grew up, uh, we moved around a little bit the first few years of my life, but from about seven, six, seven, we were in Orange in the Central West. And that's where I call my other home when I go home to visit family. Um, But I then went to uni uh, in Sydney after I'd finished school after a couple of years and then moved straight out to Broken Hill. So this is the longest I've ever lived in one place is in Broken Hill. So it does very much feel like my home now. What brought you to Broken Hill? I came to Broken Hill to teach. I'm a primary school teacher by training and they, the Department of Education came to university one day and were trying to encourage us all as we were finishing our final year to go and teach in Western Sydney because there was very much a need for teachers in Western Sydney. And I had spent the four years of uni being at uni, but then every once a month driving over the Blue Mountains to visit family in Orange. And um, the city was great, but it's not my cup of tea long-term, the intensity and so many people, that's not where I feel the most calm. And so I knew I wanted to not stay in Sydney and I wanted to go somewhere over the Blue Mountains again. Um, But I came because I opened the street directory in my car at the car park (laughs) at uni and there was a state map because we still had, you know, street directories in our cars at that point. And I went, Broken Hill, that's pretty west. I've never been there before. And I kind of, I didn't say anything to anybody for a few months and I sat on it and just kind of contemplated how I felt about that. I mentioned it then to my mum and she was really excited about it. They'd been here on a holiday and she said, I don't know why I didn't think to suggest that to you. I think you'd really enjoy it out there. And it was a pretty cool place and they were happy to support me wherever I went. And then, yeah, I kind of, I started contacting schools and, uh, There was no official permanent jobs at the time to apply for, but they all said that there was a lot of casual work and temporary work. And the phrasing was, and if you're worth your salt, you'll keep getting a job. So I thought, you know what, I will, I'm going to give it a crack. And then weirdly, a very close friend of mine um, who was also in Sydney um, was, got engaged and, and was marrying a person who was going to be a pilot with the Royal Flying Doctors out here. So she was moving out. She was quite scared going, I'm going to go to Broken Hill. And I said, well, I'm, go- I'm already going to go there as well. So anyway, we ended up coming kind of six months apart from each other. And But I came to teach 
and I thought I would really just be here for a couple of years, not because I didn't like it, but I thought, you know, it's pretty far away. I'll see how I go, stay a few years, and then I might go somewhere else because teaching is a, a great skill that can let you kind of travel and move about if that's what you're interested in. Um, but here we are basically 15 years later. And when I came to town and I first got a job, the first principal that I had, um, who's only just very recently retired, he said, it's funny with Broken Hill, you either come and you teach for a couple of years and then you move on, or 25 years later, you're still here. And I said, what are you? And he said, it'll be 23 years <laughs> next year. So, <laughs> and he's still here and his, his grandchildren are now at school in Broken Hill. So it's funny. I think some people, it kind of gets under your skin and you can just appreciate what a great community it is and you just want to stay. So... So what school did you go and teach at? Yes, so I uh, had I didn't have an official job, so I had come and I was going to do some casual teaching and try and sort of find something. The day after I arrived in town, I got a call from a principal to say, I've heard you're here, which was a little bit creepy, but um, <laughs> that's how small the teaching world is in Broken Hill. So we'd heard I'd come to town through another casual teacher and... He said, can you come and talk to me right now? Uh, so I stopped trying to buy a fridge for the rental that I was moving into. And I went up to the school. I went to Railway Town Public School, best in the West. Woo! And yeah, we had a lovely chat and he showed me around the school and he was really lovely. And he said, I think that I would like to give you an opportunity to jump in to a school. And I think it was very lovely, actually, at the time. He said, I think I want to be the person that says, I gave Jane a job and that has always stuck with me because I think for someone who did not know me at all that that was a very kind thing to say um and he was encouraged that I'd kind of just been brave enough to come and move away from family and friends really and give it a crack so I went into a maternity position to start with in the library and then I moved on to class for a number of years and then I spent about seven years in the library at Railway Town kind of and then here we are what grades did you teach? I taught uh, my first class officially the second year out. I taught my uh, grade three and four, so stage two. And I really love that age group. It's a really nice, sweet spot where everybody's pretty independent at that point. Um, they can do a lot of things, but also they just are excited for fun learning. The hormones haven't quite kicked in yet. There's a lot of enthusiasm. You can kind of G them up a little bit. And it was a really lovely time. I think I taught stage two for about four years and then I went to year one and year two for a few years and I also really enjoyed that down there getting into that early literacy phase but then moving to the library it was wonderful because I actually was able to teach the entire school across a week so I had everybody for at least two hours and then I also spent a number of years teaching half of my week in the support class at the school so kind of team teaching alongside the the key teachers of that class but working with the kids who perhaps had some extra things going on and that taught me a huge amount being able to teach um, in that class in particular and working with students that are yeah really having to learn differently um, work things out uh, in the world for themselves in a really wide variety of ways and navigate also the social aspect of school and I think to be able to stop and to slow down and really reflect on the way that you teach to make it most effective for every single person in a class. I think teaching in support classes and with children who have um, extra learning requirements is something that every teacher should do and it makes you a better teacher. So, yeah. And what did you do as a library teacher? So as a library teacher, I did, part of my time was to teach uh, subjects like science or sometimes history, a bit of technology, but primarily I wanted that role in the library to be an opportunity to grow a love of reading and a reading culture within the school. So there's a little bit of freedom in the library uh, in that uh, you can introduce different authors and genres. There isn't... Um, as detailed a curriculum there's still a curriculum but there's a little bit more freedom for you to go down this avenue or if there's interest from the children you can go down this avenue uh, and still teach the parameters that you need to teach and so a big part of the job was also giving the library a good clean out and a flush out and we got rid of some older things that didn't need to be there not the classics but the things that were 
not necessary to be there anymore. We cleaned out the teacher resources and moved them to another space in the school. And the goal was that we made that space feel like it was about the children and it was about being able to find a joy in reading and that everybody would find a book. And I spent quite a bit of time actually rearranging the system not in the non-fictions, but the the fictions, we took them out of the Dewey Decimal System and I actually put them into a genre system so that there was greater independence, so that when students came in, whether that was class time or at library, uh, sorry, at lunchtime, that they would be able to walk in and instinctively be able to find the books that they were interested in and not lose time getting stuck, trying to find something, giving up, getting bored, and then it turning into, you know, a behaviour situation, but actually being able to walk in and them have the confidence to say, I love books about dinosaurs and I know where they are and I'm going to get them and I'm going to sit down and delve into that. And so, yes. And then the other favourite part, in terms of in, terms of in the library, but it started in the... Um, in the stage two and the stage one classrooms, but really being able to take time every single day to stop and to read aloud to children, which I think is ultimately one of the best things any of us can ever do with children. Um, But in a classroom setting, it's one of my most favorite memories is to be able to sit with a group and to take them through a whole story from the beginning to end, whether it's a great picture book or whether it's an excellent chapter book, something that they wouldn't necessarily pick up themselves, something that's not necessarily their favourite genre, but for you to take them through it and get to the other side and to have them, you know, when you close the book that day, then go, no, just read a bit more and you know that you've got them and then you wait for the next day and then they're all ready and they're all there. And I think it's a lovely thing because as a class... And in teaching, we have so many children coming from so many backgrounds and experiences and the things just even of that morning that they've experienced that they bring into the classroom. Everybody has something different. But when you sit down and you share one story, one book together, you all go on that journey together. So it's this beautiful unifying experience for the entire class and you feel the things the character feels. There's the highs, there's the lows, there's the stress points, there's the the disappointments but you've all done it together and so it's a really easy way to just bond a group of people as well and to sit back and go that story will stick with all of us because of you know did we like it did we not like it you know how did we feel when it ended was there more that we didn't get all of those things so that was probably one of my favorite things is really having the freedom in the library to go we are going to read as many books as we can and (laughs) and no one no one could stop us at that point so yeah you obviously have a love for literature was that something that was really instilled in you as a child what are some of your favorite books Mm. as a child Oh, it's so hard to choose favorite books. I definitely had people around me. My family read. Um, my dad is a really keen reader. He reads a lot of autobiographies. Um, my mum is not has become a reader later in life, but was always a great lover of the radio. And I think from her, I saw um, somebody who loves stories of other people. So listening to people's stories, um, listening to historical narratives was something I saw in her a lot but it's interesting because now she has very much delved back into reading perhaps now that all of the children are grown up and maybe she has a bit more time to do the reading but we were always encouraged to read and expected to read we also had things like audiobooks a lot I remember falling asleep when I was about 12 or 13 I would always put a cassette tape on because you know we didn't have mp3 players at that point um but I remember distinctively listening to Wuthering Heights and you know some of those passages you know like really staying with me I think one of my most favorite books as a child was um the Chronicles of Narnia the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe is a particular favorite of mine and I'm not a huge fantasy reader at all but that for me trod this lovely line between the realness of the characters and what they were experiencing before they stepped into Narnia and, and out of Narnia, but also this idea that there was this magical world, but that it also mirrored the world. And I think I could see in Narnia how story and real life can help and reflect each other. You know, when you read a book, you learn about yourself, but you also learn about other people by learning from the characters and through their experiences that you might not have but it challenges you to think. And I think Lucy in particular in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, there was something about Lucy that I very much resonated with as a child. But also I loved, you know, when I was, in terms of picture books, I loved, 
I loved books that rhymed. I loved, um, there's some older books called Bodice Nikes and Gumbles, and I loved those those books. They're about, um, S, they're by S.A. Wakefield, and they're about these uh, made-up creatures that live in the Australian bush, and the Bodice Nikes are these grumpy old spiky kinds of things, and they're always trying to catch the gumbles, and the gumbles can squish into any size container, and they make funny noises, and it was just this hilarious kind of to and fro of good and bad but set in the Australian bush so it felt very nice and familiar as well but picture books I really enjoyed I think I really stuck books like Princess Smarty Pants I don't know if you remember that one Princess Smarty Pants which is ultimately a small picture book of the feminist uh ideals in terms of girls don't need boys and uh (laughs) they can can get on they can do things from for themselves they don't need someone to come and rescue them and sweep them off their feet and I just thought that was kind of cool um yeah where the wild things are some of those classics that you know I still just remember they were there on the shelf I think another favorite that I have a strong memory of is um the jolly postman and that was a book that uh someone close to us a family friend gave to us and it stayed on the higher shelf in the in our lounge room and it was the shelf where I couldn't get the book down and mum had to get it down for us because it has all of the lovely pockets with the letters on each page and so the great fear is that you would lose the letter and then the story wouldn't make sense and so we'd had to, we'd have to read that one with mum or under supervision <laughs> so that she made sure all the letters went back in and then it could go on the shelf so there's, yeah, there's a lot. I went through a big phase, um, perhaps as a teenager as well, where I really enjoyed, I think I read a lot of Jackie French, but historical fiction, that kind of, that's kind of where I've landed as a reader. I really enjoy, not necessarily autobiographies or biographies, but historical fiction, where again, I think you can look back on a past real life experience and try to learn from that and learn from how people have made choices, what they've, what they've pushed against, what they've you know strived for um and I think part of what I like about historical fiction is that it makes me really grateful for the time that I do live in there are a lot of really hard things about the world all the time but I look back and I think gosh I'm glad I didn't live through the potato famine that the Irish did or gosh I'm really grateful that I didn't um that I didn't live through the deepest darkest parts of the stolen generation for instance but I think reading back on those things is so important because you you then have less excuses to let those things happen in the future so I think that's what I really like about Mm. historical fiction Mm. so going back to your time at teaching yes there for 12 years at railway town but at Mm. some point you've had this idea of Mm. big sky stories so what 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 is big sky stories and why Why did you start it? (laughs) It's a great question. I think the concept, it wasn't called Big Sky Stories until, you know, the crux point of needing to decide what we were going to call it. But um, the idea that um, it would be amazing to create a space that was focused on literacy, literature, a love of reading, um, but was also slightly different from a library concept, came from perhaps... um, seeing in about 2010 the Sydney Story Factory opened in Sydney uh, and there are another couple of similar models Uh, the first one uh, that started in there was one that started in the states that kind of prompted the Sydney Story Factory and there's another couple that are down in Melbourne um, and I think there might even be another sort of version of that in Brisbane now as well and hearing and experiencing what those places were able to offer children who were also from perhaps a disadvantaged background there was a bit of a focus there um but primarily they were also about writing creative writing and they were doing workshops and they were bringing children in and they were trying to take away perhaps some of the stickiness and the heaviness that the curriculum can sometimes give and they really wanted to build up i think the idea of uh voice and that children from all backgrounds we want them to be represented in writing Um, so those models were primarily based on creative writing but I think what I could see was that it was so exciting and it was so different and it really challenged the idea of the traditional school system which is a quite a product of the industrial revolution and I think the more time you spend with children and you see how quickly 
the world is changing for them. Even just the fact that we don't have street directories in our cars anymore. But, you know, 15 years ago, that's what, that's what I was using to get around. So the world is changing really quickly, but we're not necessarily adjusting our education system at the same pace. And so these models were really exciting to me because I thought that's different. That's thinking outside the square and it's trying to bring back the joy and the love and the freshness. It's not just about data collection and it's not just trying to tick people off you know a skills list it's trying to it's trying to build in a love for not necessarily that everyone will become a published writer but that they have voice and that they have things to say because when you know that you have a voice that's worth listening to you can stand up to the bully in the playground or you can stand up for that person who needs assistance or you can say you know what I've got skills and I'm going to go and use them for someone else so I think those things they're very big and conceptual but I think ultimately I also thought, this is great, but they're all places, they're all set up in urban places. And I was living out in Broken Hill and I, re- I love it out here. I love the fact that I can drive two minutes out of town and I can feel like I'm the only person in the whole wide world. Or every day you can't have anything but a cracker of a sunset and a sunrise. And that there's space to think and to breathe. breathe. And this landscape is amazing. And I think... I thought it's so great out here, but it's sad that sometimes the geography can maybe limit the experiences that young people are having. And so this idea brewed, and I guess it sat there for a good 10 years, and I thought, oh, it's too hard, it's too hard, and but I didn't want it to just be the same as that. I knew that part of it needed to include books and an opportunity for books to be going into people's homes and to build reader ownership. And I think it also was really compelled, especially once I was in the library um, and just those everyday interactions of children and them talking about how even some of them weren't allowed to borrow books because they were worried that it would get lost at home and then it wouldn't come back and then they wouldn't be allowed to borrow anymore. So it was just easier to leave it alone and not do it or children just didn't see themselves as readers or they would say no one at home reads with me or you know it's too hard or they would just get really stuck on these are the easy books but they weren't willing to go into something challenging and I think I just I kept seeing in the small you know pocket that I was experiencing that perhaps there was a bigger need for something that would really push the young people in the far west towards being children who saw themselves as readers and loved reading and wanted to do that with their own children and have their parents be excited about it. And and not because I think everybody has to read War and Peace at some point. I haven't read War and Peace. I don't intend to. But, but just that it's an avenue when other things are really hard in life. It's a wonderful avenue to stop and to read a book and to kind of let those things go for a time. Or it's lovely to be able to read a book and share that moment, even if it's for five minutes between you and someone that you know loves you and cares about you, for you to, again, delve into that story and experience it together. Like we did as a class where we went on this journey together, you can do that with your mum or your dad or your pop or your nan or an aunt or an uncle. And there's something just quite, I think, sacred about that space and what happens in there when you share that story and you can bond together and so big sky stories is sorry that's a long-winded answer to say that big sky stories i wanted it to be a space where that allowed a lot of those things were allowed to happen there was space for books there was space to talk about books there was space to encourage writing and expression and to delve into the different facets of what literature and stories can be also I've always been a keen believer that the creative arts is a really important part of how we learn and and grow and that that is something that's not very easily enacted in the public school system it kind of or any school system but it kind of gets a bit pushed out by more rote practice and we learn best when we learn in our bodies so things like drama things like getting up and moving around and not just telling a story without words, but telling a story with our bodies or becoming a character and embodying that experience to some degree helps helps the depth of reading and learning um, develop. And so wanting to be able to kind of do more of that and have more freedom to do that. So yeah, Big Sky Stories, we are in a nutshell, we're a not-for-profit, um, we're a registered charity and we're based on an idea uh, called a social enterprise where the goal is that um, 
we make enough money to keep ourselves going and to pay the bills but ultimately we want the finances to go back into our social purpose and that social purpose is to encourage enable and equip young people children families in the far west of new south wales to develop a love and joy of reading through creative arts experiences and through quality literature so i want to go back it's really inspiring actually hearing you talk and your passion i'm a mum of two young boys a two-year-old and a three and a half year old Mm. so it's really encouraging to hear Mm. someone like you is really invested in um, the next generation Mm. just to go back a bit i was The word industrial, when you're talking about Mm. the school system currently, kind of stood out to me. Can Mm -hmm. you just unpack that a little bit? Because you're stepping out of the school system Mm. with this enterprise. So why does this model not work in schools or can't work in schools? I think this this model isn't about at all... um, It's not about wanting to... Mm. it's not about saying that all of that system is wrong it's about saying how can we make sure and encourage that these things keep happening in schools because I do think at some point our school system is going to have to have a big twist and a shake up Um, and the industrial aspect being that you know the industrial revolution was about streamlining things creating slick processes Uh, people not having to do necessarily quite so many of the jobs because machinery was more efficient, but also that things would be produced in a way that was very the same. So, you know, you can make 400 rubber ducks because they come through the machine and the machine is the same and the mould is the same. And I think our school system is based on that industrial model where everybody comes, they're all in the room, they have this... um, They all, you know, read from the same book, do the same things, do the same assessments, and out the other end, they should come out able to do A, B, C, D, and E. And when you're making rubber ducks, that works because you're using rubber, and most consistently rubber is the same, and the yellow dye is the same, or the orange paint is the same, but people are not the same as that. And children come to school with so many different experiences and backgrounds they come possibly from being born prematurely and so therefore having um, physical needs that they've had to adjust to over time they come with um, family situations that are wide and varied they may not live with blood relatives they may have been in the foster system for a number of years and so haven't had necessarily the same kind of stability as another child we have um, families that are going through processes um, of stress whether that be from from angst or separation or even through grief and mourning we have siblings who come to school and they are ultimately sometimes the carers for younger siblings because we have parents and carers who work multiple jobs because the cost of living is so much we have children who haven't necessarily had dinner the night before again because of different circumstances. We have children who are neurodivergent, who learn in so many different ways that we now understand the brain is capable of. So when we come at learning with just a systematic approach of we do this, we do this, we tick all these boxes, everybody will come out able to do these things at the other end. I just think that that doesn't match what children are. Mm. And it's a tricky balance because in education, we're taught to really know and understand and acknowledge the differences that come into the classroom. But sometimes, um, not because people don't care, but just because sometimes systems don't have very much flexibility in them, it's very hard to necessarily adapt as easily everything that you know would be helpful for everybody. Um, So whether that's because... You might need another set of hands in the classroom because there's one or two or three or ten people in the particular who need a bit more time or who need someone to work with them one step at a time 
because auditory processing is an issue for them and so they can't go at the same speed as five other people or you've got this person over here who is feeling really upset that day because a lot of things have legitimately happened to them and you kind of have to care for them but also keep everybody learning and it's it's it feels a lot like juggling a lot of balls all of the time and there's a lot of expectation in terms of what you'll be able to get through in the classroom experience but also what you want to try and do is care for these lovely little people that are in the room and they're all really different and you're trying to bond them together as a group, you're trying to help them care for each other, but you're also trying to know them well enough and where they're all at in a wide variety of skills to be able to help them just take the next step forward. And so Big Sky Stories is not about trying to say everything about school is awful and bad. I love so many things about my school experience as a student and also as a teacher and I miss lots of those things but I also think that as a society a part of what we've done is say learning is the job of a school and when they get to school children will learn how to do this and this and I think that has also come from creating a bit of a you know social cultural atmosphere where we have a lot of expectations about what we how we want to live and we want to have we want to have fun lives busy lives we want to have enough of the things um, we want to experience a lot of things but also there are stresses like finances like family situations like emotional things going on and there's so much going on that actually it's easier in many ways to just go you know what I'm going to put learning on the plate of school and Big Sky Stories really wants to say that school is there, but also the research that we now have and understand is that we know that 90% of the brain um, develops by the time you are three, four, and ultimately by five. So when you start your formal school experience at a primary school level at least, um, not talking about early childhood, but at that kindergarten level, so much of that development has already formed that if you're not ready for that systematic outlay of learning and instruction and um and and if emotionally and socially you're not ready for being in a larger group of people and following lots of instructions and having really big long days then it can really quickly become quite overwhelming and once you start to fall a little bit behind in what people deem as the you know, markers that you should meet at certain points, then it's it can be really, really hard to catch up just because when you're talking about a school, you're talking about a lot of people and less intensity in terms of one-on-one -on -one support. So so the goal of Big Sky Stories at, is that we really enable families in that role of a first teacher. And we say, you guys can do this. How can we help you do it? Let us support you in doing that whether it's providing space for you to come and just have a bit of a breather or it's space because you want to talk about what that might look like whether it's helping you um, just to understand how the brain works and how language develops because for lots of people it's not a conversation that we have every day um, and when you know more things you can do more things and so um, there's an educational aspect to it, but also I think sometimes it's just about encouraging people and saying, I'm excited about it and I want you to be excited about it and I want you in, I want you to enjoy it. I don't want you to read. If you don't like reading that book with that little person, stop reading with it. I want you to enjoy it as much as that little person is enjoying it, even though you're horribly tired, even though you've had to do five loads of washing in a day, all of those things. But also not to put pressure on people to say, you suddenly just have to get them there but knowing that every piece of that early development puzzle that we invest into will have such a great long-term benefit if we can encourage people and support people in that I think we can see huge strides made for our young people once they start experiencing a more formal school experience I'm nodding my head because <laughs> I'm thinking about like as a parent yes. reading books to my sons yes. and I'm just like, oh, do we have to read that book <laughs> again? Can we read another book? Yes. I'm so sick of reading yes. Bluey Fruit Bats book. <laughs> I really am. 
That's right. And let's be honest, Bluey was made as a television visual entertainment experience. Bluey was not written to be delightful literature format so but i think that's the other thing i think part of what's hard is helping people understand that we've perhaps maybe unknowingly created rules about what reading looks like for children you know to be honest when they're two and three and four and five ultimately most of the time they still don't know what those actual words are on the page so you know what tell a different story (laughs) like who said you just have to read the words on the page like why not be like and then all of a sudden bluey decided they weren't going on a picnic but they were going to climb a volcanic mountain and off they like add to the story you know turn it into something why is that important it's important because it's about creativity and story is about being creative it's about telling things that are truthful experiences but it's also about imagining and inventing and that's what stories will do for you as well stories you know reading stories listening to stories whether that's you know because you're a grown-up and you like listening to a podcast that's like a crime thriller part of it is about going on the journey and the tension and the build-up you know whether you like listening to the story of you know the gardener who's been working on these rose bushes for 25 years and they have narrowed down the perfect way to get the best blooms all of that is about other people's experiences and how that mirrors in and reflects on ourselves and so changing the story shows children as well that you can be creative with it like it's supposed to be fun it's not supposed to feel awful so if it feels awful for you as the grown-up change the way you're doing it and not as in it always has to be the voices but voices and mucking around with voices can be a pretty fun way to make it different or um, engaging them in the story as well so that you're sometimes doing less of the work like stop at the end if you've read that book a lot they will know that story so stop telling them the story and ask them to tell you the story because a huge part of what we want to say at Big Sky Stories as well is to encourage young people to do more speaking to get children talking more and more because that oral speech will lead to a better understanding of how sounds work and how sounds play together therefore how books work how reading works because that's just sounds in a you know letter format and then we can piece those things together and then we've got sentences you know and then you can get into that at school that all of that decoding process but to play with it is to also show them that it's fun you know to sing the five little ducks song but when you've sung it 400 times turn it into the five little diggers went out one day and that foreman called them back and only four came back. Do you know what I mean? Or it wasn't Little Red Riding Hood, it was Little Red Brontosaurus and that Brontosaurus went off and it met a T-Rex in the forest. And and you can just, yeah, it's not, a, it's not about having to follow a script, but that script is also there if you're not sure what to say. So if you don't feel confident as a grown-up in telling stories because it's not something you experienced, let let the author and the illustrator that have worked really hard to skill themselves in that way let them give that to you and you use that and share that with that little person but don't be afraid to change it don't be afraid to make it up on your own or stop at the last word on every sentence and you'll be surprised how often that three-year-old will chip in and say i know what it is and especially if it's a great rhyming or um a book with some rhythm in it that that um receptive language that they've been listening to and listening to and listening to it is there and it's ready to start bursting out so as soon as they're starting to express more you pull back a little bit and let them go for it and encourage them and ask them what they think's happening in the story or point to the picture and ask them how they think the character's feeling and even if you don't actually read the story but you just use it as a prompt to get them talking more that will do and does a huge amount for their language development yeah I mean, yeah. I'm thinking sometimes when I read books and the boys are flipping over the pages yes. and going ahead or going back and it's so frustrating, isn't it? <laughs> it is because they're not following the system. But we don't want to push them into a system. We want them to push them into a rich, deep, wonderful, creative experience of storytelling and, and, and that idea of, of journeying through. So read the book in the order that they turn the pages. Okay. It's, it's because for them it's more about... Um, you know, experiencing the sounds and the words and that exposure to all that vocabulary and the playfulness of it. And, yeah, we don't have to feel like everything just has to go from A to B. And you might be surprised how much more you enjoy it. And also, 
When we're very little, essentially our attention span is equivalent to about our age. So when you're one, you've got about one minute and most stories take a bit more than a minute. But if you get a minute in and they put it down and they want to pick another one, put it down and pick another one. Like it doesn't, it doesn't have to be, no, we will get to the end of the book. You know, like, no, I don't know very many people that pick up Lord of the Rings and just go from beginning to end. Like, so we've, we've put these unconscious kind of rules around it and we don't, need to do that you can play with it you can just you know even if you literally don't read it and you say what can you see on this page get them to talk about what they can see what do you think that what do you think this page sounds like that's a great question to ask young children you know like whether you're reading a dinosaur book or something about the ocean ask them if they could hear this page what would it sound like and sometimes you'll get a lot of very unexpected answers and at some point apparently every character in the book will be making a fart sound but ultimately they're putting their ideas into story and they're starting to see and identify themselves also as storytellers so not just consumers of stories but also people who have something to say and something to being creators that's right and having something to put out there into the world and that's what you want to encourage as well not just that you have to follow the system and follow the rules but you can do something different and you know yeah not constantly consuming yes people who create and yes imagine and i Absolutely. guess so maybe that's tapping into that culture that we live in as consumers of we media do. and content yep. and information yes and knowledge yes um and do you think as parents maybe a little bit of my own experience is feeling confident to be able to teach your kids and Absolutely. that you know what you're doing and absolutely that's right and you may have had that can be a lot of different it may be that also you didn't grow up in an experience where uh books or reading or storytelling or that kind of talk between you know sometimes you might you might have been the children that was to be seen but not heard and so you didn't have that kind of relationship with family members or you didn't have the resources available in your house that maybe there weren't books because money was spent on other things that were deep necessities um also, you might have had, um, sadly, many people have had a pretty sometimes unpleasant schooling experience. And so anything kind of connected to that feels really uncomfortable and brings back really negative memories. And so, of course, you might want to avoid that or keep that at arm's length. And I think um, I think a, another aspect of Big Sky Stories that encouraging and enabling and equipping aspect it's to do it for children but it's really to do it for grown-ups you know i would love to sit down with every kid in the far west and read with them all of the time but that is impossible as one human being to do that but the people who live with them in their households if we can encourage that little fire of of doing that as much as but not for four hours every day but even if it's one book every day or even if it's five minutes every day it makes a difference. We know that the more exposure you have to words and whether that's through talking or playing, that counts as well. But stories are, as I said, they're one of those easier ways where it's just there, it's happening, you're doing it, you're exposing them to words that they aren't necessarily using themselves yet, but when they're ready to, you've added to that bank of knowledge. What are the statistics when it comes to literacy in the far west? Yeah, so... I think one of the key statistics is that um, the uh, the ADC data from 2021, which is essentially the um, early development childhood data that's gathered uh, for the far west in one particular area in terms of um, language and cognition. So, you know, receptive language, expressive language, um, that process of thinking that's what cognition is thinking um joining ideas together in uh 2021 the far west the five-year-olds that were assessed uh were at 31.1 percent at risk or vulnerable in their language and cognition and to put data it always data is helpful when you compare it to other things the rest of new south wales in the same assessment at that same year was at 15% in terms of those that were vulnerable or at risk. And so that is more than twice the state average for children in the far west being at risk. And that's that's a huge amount. That's a third of children at a critical phase where 90% of their brain development is kind of locking into place as a foundation that they're not 
ready to kind of tackle the things that are really going to be coming at them in that more formal schooling system. And so they're starting a little, they're starting quite a bit behind. Not everybody, but a good chunk of little people are starting behind. And it's only going to, they'll still keep moving forward and they'll still keep learning. But if you're already a year or two behind, you'll keep being a year or two behind. You'll keep moving forward, but others will be moving forward ahead of you. And when you're 10 and when you're 11 and when you're 12 and you can't do the things that some other people can do, that starts to really impact you emotionally and socially. And we know that going into high school and teenage years, we become so scared and worried about about what people think of us. And so if we're not confident or capable in our everyday learning circumstances, it's easy to also run away from those things and avoid them more or push them to the side or do something else so that you don't have to feel silly that you can't read as well as you thought or you can't answer that question as best you might be able to compared to others. Um, it's, all, it's complicated and it's, <laughs> and it's You're really lot. trying to change a generation. Yes. And that's huge that's big and you're doing it here in the far west yes and um you know i i just think for someone who's been here for 15 years you're really Mm. setting yourself a task to be here for the rest of your life i am yeah and that's big it it is big you must really love this place (laughs) i do i do really i do really love it it's been a place it's been a community that has really welcomed me i have lots of wonderful friends here and people who also have been very close friends and will remain close friends but also people who have also moved on from here as well i think the transience of of some aspects of broken hill in the far west is a tricky thing to balance as well but i've also had people care about me and invest in me and um and i think in a community that's what you want you know and when you experience that for yourself I think it naturally wants you, it builds a natural want for you to, to do that for the others around you. And so I also want to say it's a big task and it's definitely not something A, that I can do by myself, nor at any point up until now I have done by myself. <laughs> this is, it's been a very big, very big team effort. Yes, but let's I, talk yeah, about the team. Yes, but can I also say that I, so in terms of doing this, it's not something that I think I can do. But if I can just keep going on about it and everybody else in our community, you know, if there's a ripple effect and if more and more and more of us are talking to each other about it and um, doing it with our children, doing it with the children that visit our houses, talking to our cousins about it now, you know, if it becomes something that as a community we're doing, actually, then we can do something. You know, when our community cares enough about something, I've seen our community do great, you know, when we care about the footy final, you know, you can't, you know, you know where everybody stands, you know, and people will, they will be there, they will cheer, they will shout, you know, when we care about something as a community, everybody knows about it. So I would like to just kind of keep talking about this until our community, you know, because we do, I know that we care about it. We care about our kids having the best opportunities as possible. But if we do it, if we do the work as a community, we can change it and we can shift it and we cannot have 31.1% of our kids not quite ready and at risk in really falling behind in their language and cognition. So, yes, <laughs> it's a team. No, that was, that was really good to hear because <laughs> it's, it is going to involve community yes. participation. Absolutely. Locally, that's more right. broadly. That's right. In every household. That's, yeah. that's the goal. Yeah. How talk to me about the structure of Big Sky mm. Stories. There's like a board that you've got. Mm-hmm. Who's on the board? How do yes. they? How does it work? Sure. Uh, we so uh, we have a group of three directors. Um, so Dr. Robin Ewing and Mary Pilkington, who's also a primary school teacher, uh, who's been in Broken Hill for about um, eight nine years now. Uh, but is also heavily early childhood trained, and that's her her primary experience as well as in learning support. Um, and then myself as a primary school teacher. So the three of us are the three co-directors of Big Sky Stories. 
Uh, so primarily between the three of us, we make decisions, we oversee um, how operations should go, which direction we should go in, what things we should invest time and effort into. Um, you know, we also, in in our various aspects, connect with different people that we can partner with and support um, to continue the goals um, and aims of Big Sky Stories. We also have an advisory group, which has about half a dozen um, locally based people in it that we try to gather together at least once a term um, uh, in person or on Zoom to kind of recap where we've been to listen to their experiences um, in the community from an, a slightly more outside experience, whether that be as a parent or whether somebody connected to health or education. Um, so that's that's a bit of a, a mixture of people and we would like that to continue to grow in mixture and experience as well. But we, we care about understanding how other people um, are experiencing big sky stories because when you're inside something and you you know it's the thing that you care about and you think about the most it can also not necessarily communicate that way so we have the advisory board um we also try to get feedback from people who participate in workshops for instance or um learning experiences that we do here or perhaps in schools to kind of gauge their um yeah, their their feedback, their what not just what their experience was, but was it helpful? Would they would it they like more of those things? Would they was it boring and did you know did we miss the mark? Um, so structurally, in terms of that operation, we have one full time employee, which is myself um, and Marion and Robin, come and participate, but are not um, not paid. They are just directors but they come and they um they either lead groups or workshops or they participate in just some of the functional things every day oh sorry not every day but when they're able to um and we've just been able to start somebody on a part-time basis um in the space of big sky stories um in more of a junior learning role that will allow me to have some more freedom to go out into the community because I think it's really important to say that Big Sky Stories is a space for anyone and everyone who wants to come and be in a place where they can imagine and create and play and read and talk and grow. But also we want the goals of Big Sky Stories is to spend a lot of time out in the community as well and Broken Hill, but also further afield. So hoping that this year we'll be able to spend some more time out in Menindee, for instance, um, go up to Tipperbara, um, anywhere, anywhere that will have us and that we can get to, that's where we would like to go to not just expect children to come here, but for us to be able to connect with more families in other spaces because there are a huge number of people in our community that very rarely come to Argent Street and that's totally fine and okay. Um, so being able to go and do work at schools or work in playgroups and work alongside other groups um, and organisations that exist as well. That's a big part of what we want to do. So, my last question I wanted to ask <laughs> mm -hmm. um, was, what's the vision ten years down the track? Where do you want to be? <gasps> Look, so many things. I would love ten years down the track for us to be. One aspect would be producing regularly. Uh, stories in the form of books um, that were created in collaboration with local children and local storytellers and artists so that at least once a year we were producing something that helped young people connect with the stories of this place but also helped visitors to the far west to connect with stories from this place. We have a lot of people who have written wonderful books about the history and stories of, of Broken Hill in the far west uh, but they are primarily more easily accessible for you know young adults and and adults and grown-ups so to have more picture books that that young people have been a part of producing to tell their stories and to learn about their place I would love for us to be very regularly traveling 
and going out to all of the communities further afield in the far west, whether that to be to go and do some drama literacy work or whether that be to go and uh, show with them and share with them some of the best new wonderful stories that are out there and to give them a chance to um, touch and feel and choose and decide for themselves what books they want to own and delve into because it's really hard to buy a book that you can't kind of peek inside of and that tangible experience of a book we want to share. We'd love to have... Uh, people who have skills and experiences within the far west in terms of the creative arts we'd we'd love to have more opportunity for young people to connect with um, learning from local knowledge as well you know back in the day when everyone used to know rick the stonemason down the road or bob the boiler maker further up the road and you could take your bike up there and you could learn how to fix that i think there's such an opportunity with with so many skills and experiences that we could share with a younger generation that perhaps we don't necessarily have many opportunities to create that space for them to exist together. So if Big Sky Stories can be a conduit for kind of bringing generations together to share knowledge and stories, that's we would want to do that. I think also a big part of it is getting books, more books out there. So book ownership is a really big part of... Um, you know, statistically what we know makes a difference. Even owning 10 to 15 books has a huge impact on on not just your learning literacy outcomes but your general outcomes because it offers you a place for joy and reprieve and, and pleasure. Um, so getting books into bedrooms is a really big part of what we do want to do. So in 10 years' time, if we were regularly able to make sure that any child born in Broken Hill had a really solid, good supply of age-appropriate books from day one out of the womb and they had parents um, and family members who were uh, committed and understood what it meant to build in that that language practice of every single day so that they were starting off on such a solid foot if we were able to make sure that children in all of the schools across the far west, no matter what their means or experience, if they wanted a book, they could have a book, you know, they could get a book. Our Pay It Forward initiative has been phenomenally encouraging in the way that people in the community have been excited to share such a tangible resource with another person, another child that they'll never meet. But to have I think we're almost I think today we might have almost hit four hundred and fifty books today that have been paid for that someone has said, I will pay for this, but I want you to make it go into the hands of a child that might not have that opportunity. That is phenomenal that people have been so responsive in not quite eighteen months of us being open and to be able to work alongside the health service, the learning support teams in our schools, or just the the children that we come into contact here within Big Sky Stories to be able to say, can I give you a book? Can I give you five books? Because, you know, and then can we sit down and not just I'm just going to give you a book, but let's sit down and let's have a look at the ones we've got here and let's talk about what kind of books you like or stories you like and you have a look at them, you have a feel and you choose because building that reader identity for children, that's what we want to encourage, that they're not just children that we do things to, but that they can see themselves as readers, as choosers of stories, of people, as people who have something to say and to be storytellers themselves. So that choice and that ownership, that's what we want to encourage. So to have regular workshops for educators, uh, we've already been able to do about four workshops for you know professional educators in town, but to have more and more of that to encourage them to bring that love of literacy, but also that creative learning, whether that's through the dramatic arts or the visual arts to bring that deep, rich literacy learning back in to also make that a joy for them. When you are someone who works in a quite an industrialised system, it can be really hard to not just like fall into the grind. But we want to care for our educators, whether that be in early childhood or primary school or high school and say, how can we create an opportunity where you remember why you love this and why you want to pass it on and you want to share it because... You know, we don't, we don't want tired teachers who want to just, you know, go and leave. We want to encourage them. We want to keep them here and we want to keep them being excited because they will pass that on to those classrooms. So if someone's listening and they want to donate mm. or 
be a part of the pay it forward program yes. what do they do so the easiest thing to go to do is to find our website www.bigskystories.org org.org.au and from that website there's a direct page on there if you would like to donate you can do that we have um, our donations and our tax deductibles so if that's something that's helpful for you you'll get a receipt you can put that in your tax return and you can get that back so that'll be great um, so you can donate but also there's a link there that will take you to our other website which is where we can sell our books online as well so you, that will take you to one more page book emporium and on that website there's an option there you can pay it forward even online if you live on the other side of the world and you want to pay it forward you choose what books you want to pay forward just put a little note in there we won't post them to you we'll make sure it goes to um, some little people who will really appreciate that book um, there's you can email us through the website as well if you think you have something to share, whether you have a connection, whether you have a skill, whether you would like to come and give us your time, um, you know, to volunteer. We have a huge team of volunteers, which I am deeply, deeply grateful for because we wouldn't be where we are now without their assistance and their time and their willingness to care about uh, what we care about at Big Sky Stories. So huge shout out and thank you to them. But if if that's something you would like to do or if you think that we could help you um, or if you would like someone to have a coffee or a chat and talk about how we can support you as a family, as a carer, if you think that your kids could do with some books and you can't afford them, send me an email. Like, let's figure it out. So, yeah, go to bigskystories.org.au or come to 360 Argent Street. The doors are open Tuesday to Saturday. Come in, say hello, bring a coffee. Let's talk. Figure Jane. it out. And you have got a lot to say. So <laughs> I'm very sorry. I apologize. <laughs> Thank you for your willingness to listen to all of my ideas. But it's it's really lovely. And again, like I said, I'm just gonna be the gong that keeps talking about it and we'll see what we can yeah, do. You keep checking. <laughs> I will. <laughs> Jane, thank you so much for your time, for your passion, for what you've done for our community so far, and we wish you all the best. That was Jane Vaughan from Big Sky Stories, a social enterprise hoping to improve reading and literacy in the far west of New South Wales. 